Hi, this is Jane from Nashville, and you're listening to Two Broads Talking Politics. This is Kelly with Two Broads Talking Politics, and today I am excited to be talking to Michael McCord, who is a former political editor and columnist, an award-winning journalist, and a writer, has written a new book called End Times, More Great Adventures in Real America. Hi, Michael. Good day, Kelly. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, so <laughs> End Times seems like a, a pretty appropriate title at the moment. <laughs> It does. It does. It's uh, somehow it all, you know, it, it all, uh, you know, comes out. Uh, the the intersection of fact and fiction is becoming perilously, you know, unknown right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So I want to dive into that, but maybe uh, we could start with just sort of a little bit of background uh, about you. Tell us a little bit about you know your your history of writing about politics and and then why you decided to get into fiction writing. I am a native West Coaster. I was born in the state of Washington, grew up in Las Vegas during the final days of, of mob control of, of the casinos. So that was a very interesting environment uh, to grow up in. Uh, I was in the uh, military. Uh, I was in the military intelligence branch. Uh, and uh, so you can only imagine how amazing it was, you know, 40 plus years later. Uh, you know, I had worked hard with many, many hundreds, thousands of others to kind of keep the KGB and the GRU at bay in, 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 uh, Eastern, you know, in Europe. And, uh, and now they're just invited in as if they're esteemed guests. So you can imagine how that, how that kind of made me feel. I began, uh, uh, my first presidential primary I covered as a student, uh, newspaper editor in 1980. That was the primary where, uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, won New Hampshire. And that was my first one. And I covered, seven of them since in, as I went through various career phases. And I ended up, my, my final full-time uh, gig uh, was with the Portsmouth Herald. I was their uh, political editor and uh, columnist, and uh, and I covered my last full election was 2008 uh, between, you know, the, the battle between uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. and also John McCain, who, who made quite the comeback. Yeah. Uh, that year. So I, and then I continued as a freelancer. That's what I've been doing for the past decade uh, here in New Hampshire. And as a business writer, economics writer, and also a little bit uh, on the political side. My last um, uh, campaign that I covered was the congressional campaign here in New Hampshire in 2012. And um, that's when I started making the transition into fiction. Uh, as I mentioned uh, on my website, I wrote an essay called Creating Real America, in which I talked about how I came, I, I was becoming increasingly concerned about where the country was headed. This was a decade ago. I had covered a, cover a couple of the uh, Tea Party rallies here in New Hampshire, and I was appalled. Uh, I was appalled by the level of vitriol. I was appalled by the kind of fantasy land that uh, the Tea Party protesters, you know, were living in. And that was fueled at the time, you know, by Fox News, but it was also Rush Limbaugh. And it was also a Congress which was dedicated to 
to total obstructionism to everything that Obama was trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking, and I, I was all I was a history graduate student at the University of New Hampshire, you know, many years ago, and I started thinking about my studies in, in uh, American political history and the kind of ebb and flow that you get with this. And I thought that this was a pretty unique period. And one of the things I didn't want to do is nobody needed another book about what was wrong with Kansas or Texas or Pennsylvania <laughs> or whatever. So I wanted to take a, a, a fictional route and a satirical route. I'd always wanted to write a satire. And so I began creating Real America. And what would happen, just imagine if the country went politically bonkers. And it was based on my belief that the Republican Party had given up governing. Uh, it, it had been building, you know, since the Reagan era, but it really accelerated during the Newt Gingrich era. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were more interested in tax cuts and right-wing judges and not doing much else. And that nihilism, I thought, was a very dangerous uh, uh, quality to have in a democracy that's far more fragile than we think it is. Yeah, I think a, a lot of us <laughs> maybe weren't paying as close attention as you were and, and, and didn't realize quite how fragile it was. But it, it's pretty obvious now uh, just how, how fragile everything was. And, you know, I, I think we, we saw that toward the end of Barack Obama's presidency. It seemed like all the Republicans were interested in was obstructing anything that Obama wanted to do. And then when Trump was elected and they suddenly had three branches, uh, you know, it, it was like the, the dog who caught the car and they didn't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have a pretty good, I believe that they knew exactly what to do with it. And it was, it, it was going to be, you know, tax cuts, uh, right-wing judges, and then essentially destroying everything, not just Obama did, but going back to the New Deal of uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And I believe that that was, that was the intent all along. I mean, it goes back to Ronald Reagan talking about welfare queens. It goes back to Richard Nixon's Southern strategy. You know, it's been there in the DNA all along. And and uh, in a sense, Trump was the uh, Republicans' Frankenstein. They created him. Uh, they created the environment for him to essentially prosper. And um, so six years ago, I was I was the uh, keynote speaker at the New Hampshire Progressive uh, summit. And this was the year after the 2012 election. And people were feeling pretty good about themselves and for good reason. Well, I had written this book that um, the first book in my real America saga, the execution channel, a political fable, which was, you know, pretty dark, pretty wild, pretty, very satirical. And essentially, I gave I, I told them that I think that your optimism might be just a little bit um on the wild side, uh, because I don't think you know what's coming. Not that I knew exactly what was coming, but I don't think they they took they, they thought it was the normal political ebb and flow. And I thought that this was as distinct what was happening as what happened in the years before the Civil War, when things just kept it was a it was a political pot that just kept boiling. You couldn't really see it, but you knew it was happening because the rhetoric was becoming uh, more partisan. It was far more intense. And one political party, again, as I've said many times, gave up on governing, which is a, a very dangerous thing. And then they, to stay in power, you have these things like Citizens United, uh, the Supreme Court, and then the Holder decision, which essentially gutted the Voting Rights Act. 
and gave way to uh, voter suppression that we haven't seen since the Jim Crow era. I thought those things were, were, were coming down the pike because the Republicans knew that with the changing demographics in the country, uh, there was no way that they could stay in power un, un, uh, unless they had like this solid South and then these pockets like Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania uh, that, that, that they could uh, be bulk work against the changing demographics. I mean, a, a far more diverse country than we've ever had before. And uh, I thought that combination of racism and a kind of uh, appreciation for authoritarian uh, needs and practices was dangerous. And so I said at, at this in the speech that I gave, I said that it's not going to be as easy as you think. Texas isn't going to turn blue right away. It might turn blue by the end of the decade, but it's certainly not going to turn blue in 2014 or 2016. There were just too many institutional uh, barriers in place, and the Republicans were bound and determined to keep them in place. So has the reception to your books changed, you know, from the, the first book in 2013 to, to now the second book in 2019? I, you know, it seems like if you had, had handed me your first book in 2013, I would have thought, oh, this is so far-fetched. This is so crazy. And and now it's like, well, it's it's almost not crazy enough. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when in 2016, it had it, it, it had a cult following mm. uh, because it was kind of crazy, like in a Kurt Vonnegut way. Yeah. And uh, but it was a, had a political edge to it, and people were saying, "Oh, this is wild! This is kooky!" And this Bowie character you created, you know, who who is proud of his ignorance and his incoherence and his drive for power, uh, you know, is just is just too much, and it's funny, but you know, it can't happen here. And and then over the past couple of years, and especially since Trump was elected, I've had readers just reach out unsolicited to me and sent me emails and said, wow, <laughs> you, kind of, you kind of saw what was happening. And I said, I didn't predict Trump. Now, that's a, that's a unique uh, phenomenon in its own right. But I did predict in many ways about, uh, you know, a country going off the rails, you know, what could happen. Now, the second book, is is really cutting close. I, I one reader sent me an email and said, you know, this book is pretty psychologically disturbing, which <laughs> I, I think I took as a compliment uh, because it's meant to shock you. Yeah, it's meant to say, I, what I'm saying, this isn't what's going to happen. This is like an alternative unit universe of what could happen. You know, with all the madness, and I believe that we're closer than ever to a country having some kind of split. It won't be like the Civil War. But I think we, we are in the midst of a, of a civil war, and we don't quite see it yet. And I think the civil war is between sane and insane America. And I think that the readers now that are reading this kind of see this and see what's happening. So what I created, uh, I, I created a different second book for the second part of the Real American Saga, in which there is a resistance, as you as you you know must have seen in the book, mm-hmm. and you know they are fighting back against this because Bowie, who's now the leader of of of, of real America, you know they split, and now the new the old country is called Old USA, which is kind of um, stunned that this could happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, can I read something from the book that kind of explains it? Sure, yeah, please do. Yeah. 
Well, I, th- this is this is one of my one of my favorite characters, who is uh, you know uh, Penelope the psychic, <laughs> and she is the she is the leader of, of the resistance, and um, and one of the things that you know that makes her unique is that she's not your typical uh, resistance leader either politically or militarily. She's a con artist and has been all of her life. But this is kind of a crazy time, which requires crazy, you know, which requires, you know, uh, uh, off the wall solutions. And so one of the things that happens is I think it's in chapter three is that she meets up with a British agent who is trying to figure out what's going on in real America. You know, these militias are taking over. Uh, the old order is, is literally being either killed or exiled. And, um, you know, and, and so Penelope was right there in the middle of it. She was running a, a psychic salon right in the middle of the real America rebellion in, in Southern California. And so, you know, one of the, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I said that she says to the, um, British agent is that this was different and people couldn't see it coming. She's a transplant, by the way, she's a transplanted German who grew up in East Germany and she saw, you know, the, the fall of the Berlin wall and the collapse of her country. And so what she said to the British agent is this, only this was different. This was the violent political pot that had been simmering for years, suddenly boiling over. They never imagined anything could change as they commuted to work and drove their kids to soccer practices or cozied up nightly at home with their digital toys. The clues were as clear as day to me, but I'm predisposed to detect political disaster. I've lived it. These typically complacent Americans assumed stability and democracy were given like oxygen. By the time they paid attention, it was too late. And so in in that passage, she kind of explains how the country fell apart. Mm -hmm. People just could not see what was happening because they couldn't believe it. They didn't trust what they were hearing or they just, you know, they just assumed that what happened yesterday was going to happen tomorrow. Do you think that, uh, so that was certainly the case uh, before Trump, Uh, you know, I think we were certainly headed that way. Do you think that's still the case, that people still aren't seeing what's happening, aren't believing what's happening? Sadly, I I, I think that uh, that is the case. Now, that doesn't mean, especially after we had, you know, the Women's March, you know, right after the inauguration. And we've had plenty of, of, of marches and goodness knows the social media, uh, you know, uh, engagement is very strong. But I still believe, remember, I think about 48% of Americans did not vote in the last election. Mm-hmm. And I'm very curious to see what's going to happen in the next election. And I still think that there's a huge chunk of this country that doesn't realize what's going on, uh, you know, you know, regarding the regarding the uh, what, what the Trump administration is doing administratively, what they're doing to the environment, uh, what, what they're doing to farmers with, their, with the sheriffs, what they're doing to immigrants. Uh, we are and, and the, the Republican Party's complete capitulation on this is dangerous because there is nothing stopping him except, you know, the resistance, you know, that, that we see. And, and hopefully the Democratic Party, you know, will become that bulk work, you know, against that uh, after 2020. But I'm still not convinced. 
and we'll have to see in the election about what's going to happen. I'm far more pessimistic, and I don't like to admit this, but I'm far more pessimistic than I was in 2013, and I think part of it is for good reasons. But I think that there is a huge chunk of this country, maybe up to 40, 45 percent, that are that are, you know, uh, they don't love Trump, but you know, they, they don't mind him, and I think that complacency is is as dangerous as, as the nihilism of the Republican Party, you know, which I think has evolved into or devolved, depending on your perspective, into you know, a combination of a national crime and a death cult. Why did you choose to make your protagonist a con artist? You know, do you think that that is the the kind of personality that that we need right now to to sort of get us out of this mess? Well, she played a role in the first in the in the first book, and um, you know, one of the things that that you know, one of the many plot twists that I put into this one is that essentially the British come to our rescue. <laughs> uh, you know, in this one. And they take the lead in trying to save America from itself. And, you know, which I thought was a nice historical twist. And she has capabilities, you know, because the, the plot, there's actually a plot here about how the resistance works. And it brings in a lot of the information warfare stuff that we saw in the 2016 election, as I'm sure you noticed, you know, to create these illusions of things that are happening that may or may not be happening. And... So Penelope was meant to be kind of a, she, she is a con artist, but she's not a mean one. Mm-hmm. She is a very, she's a professional. And um, what they need is, is someone who can, who can deal with the disinformation, all, all the conspiracy theory crap and all the lies and, and stuff that's coming from real America. They need someone who can kind of either decipher it quickly and use it or ignore it and just, you know, bull ahead forward, um, you know, to get the job done, to, to, up, um, to upstage and weaken, you know, Bowie and his followers, you know, in real America. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I've, I created this army called the Mucha Resistance Front. And, um, you know, she is essentially the head of it. But there are many people involved and she's a natural leader. Because she knows how to, she knows how to create a, uh, the, the reality that's necessary to combat this. Talk to me about figuring out how in the world to write satire <laughs> when things are so crazy. I, I saw someone joking the other day that all the editors of the Onion have just <laughs> resigned in disgust because they don't know how to top, you know, this this <laughs> attempt to buy Greenland. <laughs> So I know. I mean, what, what do you how how do you possibly write satire when the whole world feels like satire? Well, one of the things you do is you know I started this you know six years ago with a with a main character, uh, you know my emperor supreme for life, uh, Bowie, you know who was who was this larger than life character that I actually created out of five or six different ones. You know, uh, I you know because he led the imbecile caucus in Congress. I, ha- I had to create that. That was just, you know, that was a, that was a given. And so he was kind of a, 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 he was meant, you know, you know, to be the, you know, the new standard for what the Republican Party, now the real America Party, you know, uh, which evolved from it, uh, was, was meant to be. I, I just kept pushing forward and trying to make it stranger. 
So, of course, given, and, and it's especially almost shocking to me, is that I created, when I created the outline for this book, I had planned for a, a revival of slavery. And essentially, this was like political slavery or people who sold themselves into slavery because they were, uh, because they did not have the proper citizenship or they were poor. Um, I, you know, created that like five years ago. And then when you hear, you know, what's happening, you know, with the 1619 project and the reaction to it, and then you have, you know, this kind of revisionism on the, uh, you know, Confederate fringes about, well, slavery wasn't that bad, you know, uh, you know, they got free room and board and vocational training, you know, it, it was, it was, it, it was a way to help the country and stuff like that. And so it's kind of shocking, but I meant a, a slavery revival, which would draw in foreign and huge, uh, you know, investors from around the world, um, has, has a satirical, uh, point of like, there is no bottom. There can be no bottom. You know, we're just recycling history over and over again. And, um, so you just have to keep pushing forward and to try to make it stranger and to make it, and what it ends up to be, much to my surprise, and with the first book and now this one, is you end up with something that is shocking and both and eerily familiar, you know, as I've heard back from, from readers. Uh, you read the book. What, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the kind of stuff that as you're reading, you think, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, I would have thought this was, you know, over the top. <laughs> now, now there are moments like, uh, like gaslighting, you know, what the people who are who are there and know what's happening. And then here later, you know, there were casualties that that didn't actually happen, you know, but but this mm -hmm. gaslighting that's happening. And it's so uh, it it's so real. It's it's what's happening now. We are we are being gaslighted on a regular basis. Uh, you know, and mm -hmm. and the idea of sort of state run media, which is becoming closer and closer to to reality at this point. Uh, so uh, you know, obviously, the way that uh, the way that things are playing out is is not exactly what's happening right now. But um, but in a lot of ways, it does. It feels sort of shockingly familiar. And, you know, I, I'm not sure how I feel about that. You know, <laughs> does it, does it make me feel better or worse or? <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I stole for was that I did want people to laugh, mm -hmm. like, and perhaps it's a nervous laugh, Yeah, but it, it, you know, it was definitely a laugh because it's the absurdity of it. And then you think, uh, well, maybe it's not that absurd yeah. or, you know, it, 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 you know, it could be you know, truer or closer than we think it is, you know, because I created Bowie before there was Trump and Bowie was meant to be this kind of, uh, this figure that would be, it would be followed like a cult. Uh, because, and, and he was, you know, his ignorance was like unparalleled and his incoherence was amazing. And, you know, and his, and his pathological lying was, you know, was well documented. And the more he lied, you know, his, his people figured out through social media, the more he lied, the more popular he became. And, um, you know, that was, uh, you know, I, I had started, you know, working down that path, you know, before Trump. And then to see it happen is, is you know, is, is a little bit shocking. And um, but, you know, one of the things I'd like to also read just a small passage, uh, you know, from the book. This is in chapter one when 
Bowie is speaking to the real American uh, or the daughters of the real American Revolution. And it's during his We Love Bowie rally tour, you know, which leads up to one of the plot points in the book where he has this, you know, this huge coronation where he's officially appointed Emperor Supreme for life uh, of, of real America. And so he goes, uh, I, I introduced it like this. The popularity of the We Love Bowie rally tour reflected a real American renaissance. Real Americans deposited their meager salaries in Bowie banks and attended the Church of Bowie on Sunday. Excessive thinking was discouraged. Bowie and his advisors made it a priority to keep his supporters entertained and distracted as Real America Inc. went through the growing pains of economic destruction. The Bowie red shirts, the young, genetically pure Real Americans who swore blood allegiance to Bowie, led Galt News Spectrum Bowie bonfires to burn heretical books such as the U.S. Constitution, The Grapes of Wrath, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and The Handmaid's Tale. The red shirts also brought communities together with Bowie lynching parties to give moocher, liberal, feminist, elitist deviants a taste of swift American justice. Bowie went to every corner of his country to spread the, his gospel. I am honored to be here, ladies, with my favorite with my favorite women in this great palace of Galtian might. Now, don't blush here, but I want to thank you for setting the highest standards of fornication and procreation in the world, Bowie said November 2021. 20, the location highlighted the Galton imperatives in all its glory. Slave Mart, the largest free labor plantation in the Louisiana Liberty Territory, where 2,629 free labor slaves toiled 18 hours a day making We Love Bowie baseball caps. Because Real America focuses, focuses on protecting you and keeping you at home, supporting your valiant men, we need you to do your sacred work to keep fornicating and making white baby real Americans who will inherit the greatest of nations when they reach the age of consequence. You women of Real America on the front lines are protecting our great nation from arms. Mama Bowie told me the other day that Real America needs lots and lots of white baby Real Americans because the colored hordes mean to out to outbirth us and take over. As always, our beloved Mama Bowie is right. We can't let that happen. And so that's an example of, of, of the kind of to push the uh, envelope of satire. And uh, because this is a, a country that essentially considers itself to be the second coming of the Confederacy, you know, it's, uh, it's, it turned out far more prescient than, than I imagined, you know, what would happen after Trump was elected yeah. when it became obvious that this was a white supremacy regime in, in the making. So that was an example of where, you know, facts kind of caught up with my, my quest to, to make satire that so far out there that it couldn't be touched. But, well, imagine my surprise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So what's going to happen in 2020? <laughs> what, what is going to happen? I think it's going to be, uh, I've been asked this uh, question a couple of times. I think, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. I, I think as Trump continues to become more unhinged and sleep and slip deeper into madness, which I think is becoming more clear by the day, mm -hmm. uh, I think his cult is going to, to want to protect him all the more. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to see more stuff like, was it yesterday when they announced that they want indefinite detention yeah. of, of all the migrants? I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And I think we're going to see the nastiest campaign uh, in American history by far 
I think that the Russians and who knows the Saudis, the Israelis, uh, who, and who knows the Chinese might, you know, are going to get involved. It's going to be, it's, it's going to make two, 2016 look like a, you know, a polite tea party, uh, in comparison. Uh, I think that issues are going to kind of, you know, are, are going to be irrelevant as climate change becomes more and more frightening and more and more real. Um, I think that that's going to be the one that dominates. And uh, it's going to take whoever the Democratic candidate, they're going to have to be able to uh, handle themselves uh, more deftly than, than we can even imagine now, mm-hmm. because it's going to be brutal. So you live in an early state and you have followed and, and covered politics for a long time. Do you think the Democrats are sort of playing things too much like normal politics? Well, I think it, it, it ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we have this, you know, where, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, you know, Joe Biden, uh, certainly Beto O'Rourke, you know, you, it, it's not normal to call the president of the United States, you know, a white supremacist. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, so you can tell we've kind of beyond, you know, we, we, we've strayed beyond those boundaries for sure. I think there's going to have to be more of that. The problem is that the mainstream media is still like stuck like we're they're covering the 1984 campaign. Mm-hmm. It's it's appalling. The, the the lack of context, the lack of courage uh, to challenge the administration is is pretty remarkable. It's getting a little bit better, but they have been reduced to looking like you know court gestures, you know, standing on the White House lawn as Trump goes out to his helicopter and and babbles nonsense, uh, you know, beyond belief. And, you know, if someone challenges him, you know, yeah, you're the fake news media and you can't be trusted and you don't even know what you're talking about, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's going to be somewhat difficult because of that. But I think that the Democratic candidates are, are going to be helped a little bit by the impeachment proceedings in the House, mm. because I think that slowly but surely the sheer weight of criminality of this of this regime uh, is going to be revealed. And I think that that is going to help them. And they're going to be able to piggyback on that. So I believe that once again, we're going to end up, you know, at this time, probably maybe five to seven million more Americans are going to vote against Trump than, than before, which is still kind of shocking when you think what's happened over the past, uh, you know, three years. But, that, you know, let's just hope that, you know, the Electoral College uh, map will work out. Because again, one of the things that I was concerned about a decade ago, and I'm getting more concerned, I'm not sure if this continues along this path. For example, if Trump is reelected, I'm not sure that our Constitution can can last much longer. Yeah. Because you know, between the Senate and the filibuster, you know, which essentially just stops legislation and dead track, you know, deadness track, and, and makes we can make no progress as a country. Um, and, and the courts, um, I would hope, I'm not going to expect it, but I would hope that a Democratic candidate for president will say, uh, I'm going to encourage the Senate to drop the filibuster, and I'm going to add two members to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Because no matter what happens, even if the Democrats take the House, the Senate, and the White House, uh, there is a reactionary Supreme Court just waiting there to stop everything. And that's a that is a reality, you know, for the next 10 to 20 years and that we're going to have to deal with. 
And again, one of the things that in my first book I talked about was the kind of the, the new mathematics of democracy, where where the majority is essentially ignored, uh, for, for for the most part. How long can a democracy sustain that? Uh, do you have what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it feels in a lot of ways like we're we're pretty close to a tipping point right now. Uh, you know, I. I, I live in, of course, a, a very uh, blue area on the south side of Chicago, uh, you know, and so I, I I tend to be kind of insulated from all of this uh, to a certain extent. But, you know, when I when I go other places, I go and travel to see my parents in Ohio, for instance. I mean, it it feels sometimes like different parts of the country are, are like different countries, like like you're going to a foreign land where people don't believe the same things you believe. And, and I, I'm not sure that the, the country and the, the constitution can survive what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the things that's why I created, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, essentially the split up yeah. uh, because the country couldn't handle it anymore. Uh, you know, where uh, the, the strain just became, or, or as Marx would say, the contradictions became so overwhelming that, that it, they strangled, uh, you know, what we think of our democracy. And so I do agree with you in terms of, and, and not only that, but within states. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can go to certain parts of, uh, you know, like you live in Chicago. If you were to go to Philadelphia, that'd be one thing. But if you go outside mm-hmm. into the parts where, you know, political pundits used to call, you know, Al, you know the Alabama part of Pennsylvania, the you know, it's a very different thing. I mean, I was in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, going through some rural parts uh, back in May, and I can't tell you the number of Trump stickers. I can't tell you the number of MAGA hats I saw. And it's kind of shocking because we we don't see that in the part of New Hampshire where I live, mm-hmm. which is like your Chicago. We're somewhat insulated, um, as, as you are. So it can be kind of, um, it can be kind of shocking. To, to see how different the country, you know, has becoming. Yeah. Uh, well, on that cheery note. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we have to keep, you know, I have to keep writing crazy books so people can hopefully be motivated to say, we can't let that happen. <laughs> right. and, and, and then, you know, we, we, you know, we act, you know, we act and we encourage people to think and, and, and to vote. I mean, we, you know, there is still hope. That's why in, in my book, I create this kind of, you know, dystopian thriller. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you noticed where, where there was a plot and there was some there, there was some justice found, and especially at the end, as you saw. And even though it's going to spill over to the next book, uh, you know, which is going to be called Penelope, which is she is truly going to become the central character, and it'll be the final showdown between Penelope and Bowie. And I don't know who's going to win yet. <laughs> so, uh, but I think it'll be an interesting showdown. Uh, between someone who does think and someone who doesn't think. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's the kind of showdown that I want. You know, who will win? Will it just be sheer might or, or, or will it be something, uh, more subtle and more nuanced and, you know, with a fidelity towards facts and thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we're, we're living in something, you know, quite extraordinary, uh, that, Hopefully, we're going to be able to tell some some good stories about how we came out on the other end. Yes, absolutely. Michael, thank you so much for talking to me today. And uh, people should go and check out 
uh, end times, and <laughs> and hopefully we will all see this as a, a hopeful tale and where we can <laughs> where we can get to and, and good motivation for uh, for pushing through to the other side. Well, thank you. And um, people can go to my website at uh, michaelmccordauthor.com and, you know, to find out more and, and, to, and to read the essay that I wrote, you know, called Creating Real America to kind of figure it out, you know, uh, you know what, 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 I, what I've been up to and, and what I've been trying to say. All right. Well, thank you. And we'll put a link to that on our website as well. Thank you, Kelly. And have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks for listening to Two Broads Talking Politics. Our theme song is called Are You Listening? off of the album Elephant-Shaped Trees by the band Immunuri, and we're using it with permission of the band. Our logo and other original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and was created for use by this podcast.